the big week after months of campaigning, stunts, lies, insults, COVID disasters and incitement to violence, plus a bit of Joe Biden as well. America votes for its next president tomorrow, Tuesday. Between the presidential and congressional elections, the two parties have spent $14 billion on their campaigns this year, more than double the 2016 total. So where are we? What do the polls really say? Which states should we be watching? And what happens afterwards? Will we even get a result this week? I'm Andrew Harrison, and with me, I've got our semi-regular man on the U.S. presidential election beat, Brian Klass, Associate Professor in Global Politics at UCL, Washington Post columnist, host of the Power Corrupts podcast, and author of How to Rig an Election. Hello, Brian. How are your nerves? Well, I'm doing okay, as, as okay as you can when the stakes are so high, but uh, yeah, I'm hanging in there. Thanks. Firstly, the polls. We've all become addicted to 538 and watching little incremental shifts in that poll snake. Biden has a steady 8 to 8.5% lead. What does that really mean? Well, as everyone probably knows by now, the popular vote and the Electoral College are different. So um, an 8 to 8.5% lead is actually quite a big one in US politics terms. And if it were to happen, it would be the biggest landslide since at least Barack Obama um, was elected in 2008, and possibly much longer. Um, but you can lose the pop- so you can win the popular vote and lose the electoral college, as we all found out both in 2000 and in 2016 when Donald Trump did that. And so, when you start to look at a, a polling error in which Biden wins by say three or four points, then it starts to be pl- plausible that Trump could actually pull this off. So, if if Biden wins by eight eight and a half percent, as the polls suggest, it will be a landslide victory both in the popular vote and in and in the electoral college. And the bottom line is this, if there is a polling error that is similar to 2016, Biden will win and win comfortably. If there's a historic polling error that is much worse than it's been in modern history, then Trump could still win. But it would take something truly unusual to happen for that to take place. Something truly unusual. Those things never happen. We haven't been seeing them over and over again for the past four years. So what are the states that we should watch? Because obviously the polling is tighter in the battleground states. So I think there's there's sort of two sets of states to consider. One is the group of states that are going to actually determine the election, and that is most likely to be Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, which are three states that Trump won in 2016, but that are typically Democratic states. So if Biden can take those back, that's game over. But on election night itself, I'm going to be watching different states, uh, which are Florida, North Carolina, and Texas. And the reason I'm going to be watching those is because Unlike Pennsylvania, those three states are actually going to report their mail-in ballots and their um, in-person ballots all at once. They have different counting rules. So if Biden wins any of those three states, Florida, North Carolina, or Texas, the election is over and Trump has lost. And right now, Biden is favored to win both North Carolina and Florida narrowly, and Texas is a toss-up. He just needs one of the three, and we should actually know the results of one of those of all three of those states probably by 3 to 4 a.m. UK time, which is on the east coast of the U.S., we're talking about 10 p.m., 11 p.m., so only a couple hours after the polls close. If Biden loses all three of those states or it's too close to call, then we start to look at places like Pennsylvania, and that's where the real nightmare scenarios start to play out because we may not know the results in Pennsylvania until well into Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or even beyond because they've set up highly restrictive vote counting procedures. So the the dream scenario is that Biden wins one of these decisive states, they report it five hours after uh, the polls close or sooner, and everybody can breathe a sigh of relief. But we're, we're, we're not certain that that's going to happen, even though it is currently looking reasonably likely. 
Over the weekend, the Trump campaign floated the idea of claiming victory immediately the polls close. And now he says he'll be instructing his lawyers to stop the counting of ballots, irrespective of what happens. Is this a kind of an, a, an indication that he kind of knows he's lost already and, you know, his, his habitual response of see you in court? Yeah, so I think this is really irresponsible, and this is something where the press has a super important role to condemn this, because it's not partisan to do so. What Trump is saying is basically, uh, he's referring to something that pundits call the red mirage and the blue shift, which could happen in states like Pennsylvania, which are going to count slowly. The red mirage, in, in the U.S. context, red and blue are flipped from left and right from the U.K., so red refers to Republicans, blue refers to Democrats. The red mirage refers to the fact that on election day itself, there's going to be a disproportionate number of Trump supporters who will show up to the polls, partly because Trump has told them not to vote by mail, and partly because they don't believe the pandemic is as much of a threat, so they're more willing to go in person. Democrats are much more likely to vote early in person or to vote by mail. So what you're going to have in some of these states is the illusion, the red mirage, that Trump is up big in some of the states early on because they report the in-person vote totals first. And then as they start counting the early and mail-in ballots, there will be the blue shift towards the Democrats. The scenario that we're worried about and that Trump is saying he'll basically do is while there's the red mirage in place, while only a small portion of the votes have been counted, he'll say, I've won and demand that voting stops, or sorry, counting stops, Hmm. and try to use the courts to ensure that they do stop counting ballots that have been legally cast. Now, of course, this is illegitimate beyond belief, right? I mean, if you were to stop an election midway through the counting and declare victory, um, it would be effectively a nonviolent coup. So this is something where, you know, you have people who are watching this, that they have to be, they have to be informed properly that the vote counting has to proceed to the end. And that's when the election results matter. It doesn't matter what Trump says in the intervening period. And of course, there's been countless elections where we haven't known the winner on election night. And that's okay. You have to live with it for four years. So if it takes three or four days, that will be okay. Uh, You wrote a book called How to Rig an Election. Is Trump successfully rigging an election? Is he in the middle of successfully rigging an election? Well, I think he's affecting the election. I wouldn't go so far as to say rigging just yet. But I think there's some things that... You know, I, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post a couple weeks ago where I said, look, I've been an elections observer in various places around the world. If we were observing this election, we would condemn a lot of Trump's behavior. So you have things like voter suppression where Trump is lying about voting procedures, trying to get people not to vote, in combination with the fact that in re- Republican-controlled areas, the queues are much longer than they are mm. um, in other areas, especially Republican-controlled Uh, areas that are in black neighborhoods. So, you know, political science research has shown that there is a clear correlation between vote wait times and race, which is obviously a a form of voter suppression. And then you have other stuff that Trump has done, like, you know, on Twitter, he told his supporters to vote twice. He said, vote by mail and then go, uh, go to the polling place on election day and try to vote again just to test the system, which, you know, this is akin to him sort of saying, rob a bank to see if the cops are up to it, right? <laughs> and so I think there's a there's a real problem where what Trump's language is, you know, he's not specifically rigging the election. He's not stuffing ballot boxes like you might see in other rigged elections. But his, his rhetoric is causing people to behave in ways that are potentially illegal. And I think that combined with the risk of violence is something that I'm very, very worried about in the uh, immediate aftermath of the election. Do we have any indication of how successful that suppression is being so far and that intimidation and that promise of violence? Or is this simply going to be, we're going to have to wait 48 hours and see? 
Well, interestingly, in some places, the suppression efforts seem to have backfired. So this is good news for democracy and probably for Democrats. And what, what I mean by this is that in Texas, for example, the Republican governor tried to institute a rule and successfully did so to make it so that there was one ballot box drop-off point per county. Now, some of these counties have four or five million people, right? They're enormous stretches of land and you have to drive, you know, quite a long way to go to the ballot drop-off point. A lot of Texans took that as an affront to their voting rights. And so what we've seen now is actually the turnout in Texas for the early vote is higher than the total number of people who voted in 2016. So even without the people who are voting on Tuesday, more people have already voted in Texas than in the entirety of the Trump-Clinton election, which is truly astonishing. And in other states, we're seeing similar numbers. So in Florida, it's around 90% of the 2016 vote has already turned out. Uh, in other states, similar, similar numbers in the battlegrounds. So what we're hoping will happen is that the voter suppression efforts backfire, rightly, because when people try to stop you from voting, the right thing to do is to you know, jump through whatever hoop they force you to, to vote them out of office so that the other party that makes it easy for you to vote uh, gets power. And, and that may be what we're seeing in some of these key battleground states. The really frightening thing is it seems that voter suppression has been almost legitimized as part of the Republican toolbox, that it, you know, what 10 years ago would have been regarded as, as uh, fringe, uh, anti-democratic, terrifying and completely illegitimate is has now been normalized and is part of the commentary. This is this is the astonishing thing about this election is that nobody in the Republican camp thinks that Donald Trump will get more votes. I mean it's it's, it's literally taken for granted by even Republicans that he will lose the popular vote. So then the the strategy is how can we retain power while losing the popular vote, getting fewer votes than my opponent? And part of that is trying to depress turnout. And so you have not only the voter suppression stuff, but also Texas Republicans tried to throw out more than 100,000 ballots that were legally cast simply because they had been cast via a procedure of curbside voting to basically allow people to drive. It was like a drive through mm. rather than walking into a building where you had to expose yourself potentially to coronavirus. You were able to vote from your car. Now, every, every procedure was followed. Everything about the secret ballot was followed. But the Republicans took this gambit of trying to el eliminate more than 100,000 ballots. Now, of course, some of those ballots were Republicans. So um, this is something where you, you look at the Republican playbook and you compare it to other functioning democracies. No other functioning democracies in the developed world have a single major political party where their electoral strategy relies on getting people not to vote. And that is fundamentally a core aspect of Trump's strategy this time around. And that's something where, you know, this isn't just about this election. There is a, a fundamental rot in the Republican Party under Trumpism that is not going to go away no matter what happens on Tuesday. And that is the, the really uncomfortable reality that we have to face is that even if Trump loses, even if it's in a landslide, you know, one of the two major parties has acted as a, fu a functionally anti-democratic, and I mean anti-democratic with a small d, party, and that is going to be something that takes years, not days, to fix. One of the aspects of this is, and one of the bizarre aspects of this election, is that there is no Republican policy platform. It's simply we enthusiastically support Donald Trump. What sort of policy can we expect in the event of a Trump victory? Are we going to get more of the same? Yeah, this is, this is remarkable, right? That the Republican National Convention just effectively said, we have decided not to have a platform, we just are backing Trump. I mean, again, a highly authoritarian point of view to have no policy agenda. What we'd see in a second Trump term is certainly more of the same, but more extreme. So, mm -hmm. for example, 
there has been indications that Stephen Miller, who is one of Trump's, uh, you know, sort of henchmen in the White House, who is a um, a person who's highly critical of U.S. immigration policy, has a series of executive orders ready to go after the election. Things that would not be acceptable to an electorate, but that once the shackles of re-election uh, and the pressures that come with that are off, that they will enact. Uh, and, and we're talking about trying to eliminate birthright citizenship trying to make the number of refugees um, the United States accepts down to zero from an already very low point that they're at now. But of course, you know, some of the stuff with authoritarianism really worries me because, you know, when you look at these Trump rallies, there are effectively, you know, thousands of people who are chanting, lock him up now about yeah. Joe Biden. And the, uh, the precursor to those chants is something as innocuous as talking about Biden's tax policy. So, so yeah. Trump, will, Trump will lie about the Biden tax policy and the people say lock him up. I mean, these things are very dangerous. And I am I'm sincerely worried that once the sort of constraints on Trump um, from the first term are, are removed, uh, that we're going to be in some extremely dark, uncharted waters. There is another guy in the campaign, Joe Biden. He derided by Trump as supposedly hiding in the basement. He's actually been enormously active over the weekend. To what extent has Biden been able to shift the campaign onto his policy-based, reality-based uh, ground? Yeah, I think Biden has done a reasonably good job on this. And there's some things where, where Biden, I think, is unfairly labeled as this sort of um, policy dinosaur, as well as being old, because people will say, oh, he's a moderate, he's a relic of the old Democratic Party. I mean, read his climate change plan. It's $2 trillion over four years, right? The largest and most ambitious investment in, in um, climate change policy in, in possibly world history. So, you know, I, I think that some of this stuff has gotten out there to the people who care about it. The problem he has is not that he's, you know, been lacking for talking about his plans. He's tried to do this multiple times and, and his policies are very detailed. It's that no matter what Joe Biden does, this election is a referendum on Donald Trump. There's just no way around it. Is that everybody is thinking when they go into that voting booth, or when they cast their ballot by mail, do I want four more years of this or not? And, and no matter who the candidate was, that's what it was going to be about all along. So I think, unfortunately, policy has gotten completely obliterated from the campaign. And it, it is just basically about, is this person someone we want in the White House for four more years? Uh, and they're looking at Donald Trump and thinking either yes or no. And that's one of the other reasons why polls are probably more reliable this time around. Because in 2016, there was a big chunk of undecided voters, even in the final days of the election. Unless you've been in a cave or in a coma you have an attitude about Donald Trump. You know whether you like him or don't like him. And that's why there's like 3 to 4% undecided voters at this stage, which means the uncertainty in the polls has shrunk considerably, which gives us more confidence that they're probably right this time around. What effect has the participation of Obama had? Because obviously a, a, a hero to Democrats, but utterly loathed by the base in particular. And in fact, Trump seems to have spent his entire presidential term running against Obama. Um, is, 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 does Obama move the needle or has everybody made their decisions? So for Republicans, Obama doesn't move the needle at all because the people who dislike him already are voting for Trump. Obama is well-liked, as is Biden, by the way, among independents and swing voters. And this is one of the key dynamics of the campaign is that people still have an overall positive view of Joe Biden across the political spectrum. Of course, Republicans don't like him, but his net favorability is positive, which was not true of Hillary Clinton and is definitely not true of, of uh, Donald Trump. What Obama does for Biden is he, he can help expand the Democratic base in terms of getting the, those voters to turn out. 
And one of the problems that Hillary Clinton had was African-American turnout in urban areas in Midwest states. So, for example, Detroit, Michigan, or Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or parts of Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, et cetera. What, what Obama has been uh, functioning as for the campaign is to try to energize the Democratic base. So, sure, I mean, him being on the campaign trail might upset some of the Republicans uh, who are already going to vote for Trump, but it won't affect the race in any way. That, on that side, it's a net positive for Biden because it's going to cause people who might not otherwise vote um, to get fired up for the election, I think. One thing we don't really talk very often about in this country is the is the spend. And the Biden campaign has vastly outspent Trump. The New York Times today is saying he's maintained a nearly two-to-one advantage on the airways for months, mostly in swing states of Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. He's been concentrating on Trump's character and failure on coronavirus. And I can't believe we've got 18 minutes into this podcast and not mentioned coronavirus yet when there was a record of 99,000 new cases at the weekend. Is that concentration working? Is, is, is Biden hammering character and coronavirus? Again, I hate to use this phrase again, but is it moving the needle? Yes. So what you see in the polls is a a change over time that has been Biden's consolidating his lead because of COVID-19. And so, you know, you also see there's, there's strong statistical correlations between places in which coronavirus outbreaks are surging and uh, decreased support for Trump. So there are small changes, but they're statistically significant. So we can, we can say that this is actually changing things. The problem, of course, as we go back to what I said before about polarization, is that you can put a billion dollars into TV advertisement, but there's a significant chunk of the of the U.S. population that just is not going to change their mind. I mean, you know, I, I made up I made up my mind about Donald Trump in 2015. I, I knew that there was nothing he could do based on the things that he had done in the campaign and into uh, his his early days of of governing that would cause me to vote for a second Trump term. And I think there's a huge amount of people in the United States that are like that. Uh, on both sides, by the way, right? There's a lot of people on the Trump camp who will never, ever defect from him, and that's his base. And there's a lot of people in the, the Democratic Party who will never vote for a Republican. Those um, sort of diehards are much larger as groups this time around, and that means that advertising and money potentially plays less of a role. Where it plays a very big role, and this will be key in those, these final days, is getting those last votes uh, banked. So people who have requested you know, absentee ballots but haven't yet turned them in, well, having an, you know, a huge number of um, field organizers who can chase those people down and say, you know, by the way, have you voted yet? In the final days, that's a turnout battle, and that could make a difference. And that is where you know, Trump is also having to divert resources to fundraisers and has in the last few weeks. You know, he went to California last week, and so did Ivanka, um, because they needed an infusion of cash. So it's not just that you the money may, you know, the, the money matters, but it's also the time. And when you have to raise money um, by doing events in places that you're just never going to win, it, that's you know time spent holding a rally or an event that's not going to be spent in a battleground state. So there's some strategic implications of this, though I do think that the money advantage is probably lessened because of the hyperpolarization in the U.S. right now. You mentioned a little about Biden uh, policy earlier. What are we looking at politically uh, if uh, if he wins? Are we looking at a kind of a, a four year repair job here? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of cleaning up the damage. Um, I think certainly on the international stage, that's going to be one of the core priorities of, of the, the Biden administration early on is to go around to various countries that are allies and say, we're back and um, you know we're, we're, we're ready to lead again and we're not going to behave the way we have for the last four years. That's a big part of the foreign policy, I think, agenda for the Biden administration is to show 
that the United States is willing to be a global leader. On the domestic stage, you know, there's there's a question about who wins the Senate um, because the House is going to stay Democratic. The Senate is projected to go Democratic, but it is possible that that won't happen. It's going to be close. If it does happen, then you're going to have questions about you know reforming various procedures of how votes get passed. I don't want to go too much in the weeds, but there's a thing called the filibuster in the U.S. Senate, Mm. which basically requires 60 votes to pass any legislation um, on certain big ticket items. And the Democrats might get rid of that if they have a simple majority in the uh, in the Senate. That would allow Biden to to pass much more sweeping legislation because, of course, no Republicans are ever going to vote for $2 trillion of climate change spending. And so they need to change some of the rules in order to get that passed. But you could have a a pretty ambitious agenda if they do that because there will be consolidated Democratic control um, for the first time in, in quite a while. And that will cause Biden to think about those sort of ambitious progressive items that have been on the wish list of Democrats for uh, at least since the Obama administration and probably since before that. And without wanting to jinx it, if Trump wins, you already described how there will no longer be the the consideration of uh, having to stand for election again. There will no longer be uh, consideration of being reined in in any way. What's it going to do? What would it do? politically to this already massively divided country where the, the, where the violence and bitterness has been something we could not have imagined even, say, 10 years ago? You know, I, I'm really worried about violence one way or another. I, I think that no matter what happens on Tuesday night, uh, around half of the country um, is going to be not just upset at the result, but absolutely livid and angry. And you know, the, the stakes of this election are so high. It's such different visions of what the United States is supposed to be. And we've already seen, you know, really worrying signs around the election in the lead up to it. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, there was the FBI foiled a plot um, by right wing extremists to kidnap, to violently kidnap the governor of Michigan, a Democrat that Trump has taken mm-hmm. aim at on Twitter repeatedly. And um, just a couple of days ago, there was a Biden campaign bus going to an event in Texas and a, you know, a series of uh, Trump pickup trucks nearly forced it off the road and nearly caused a series of accidents um, to intimidate it and f- eventually forced the Biden campaign to end the events because it was not safe to do so. So there's, there, I think no matter what the result is, um, you know, the tensions are so unbelievably high that the idea that there will be no political violence of any sort, I think is probably not right. Um, I just hope that, you know, there's a decisive, a decisive result which at least makes clear to people that the, the, the election was you know, legitimate. Um, the, the worst case scenario is a very narrow victory for one candidate in which there are you know, widespread calls around illegitimacy, rigging, you know, which Trump has said he'll say if he loses, and that causing people to, to take up guns um, or, or you know, get into any other sort of extreme violence. And we do see indicators of this with uh, gun sales in the United States are soaring at the moment. So I'm quite pessimistic about it. I, I hope that my pessimism is unwarranted, but you know, you don't see this around elections in other countries. And in a, in a, in most major American cities, shop owners are boarding up their windows, mm. worried about what's going to come after an election. I mean, if there's anything that tells you the state of American democracy better than that, and how dire it is, that you know, a, a normal shop owner has to think about violence simply because people are going to the polls. Uh, We're in a really bad state in the U.S., and and it's not going to be fixed on Tuesday. In fact, I think it's a a structural problem that's going to take years, if not decades, to repair. 
Finally, Brian, how are you spending Tuesday night yourself? Is it going to be beer and Doritos or, you know, Valium and calming essential aromatherapy oils? I have a, uh, I have a plan, actually. So my, my brother, as a gag gift to me, bought me a bottle of Trump wine. Um, <laughs> now, I think it's going to be complete swill. I don't have mm-hmm. any confidence in the taste. But I will say that there's one extraordinarily poetic thing about that wine bottle, which I looked at and just blinked at it and said, this can't be real. Trump Winery is in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is where Trump made those comments of very fine people on both sides in praise Mm -hmm. of people marching with neo-Nazis and the KKK. And I'm either going to be uh, curled up in a fetal ball, chugging the wine out of sorrow, or celebrating um, the poetic end to uh, a terrible stain on American history. Um, But either way, it's going to be Trump wine chugged. Red wine or white wine? Oh, it's red wine. It's, um, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's when you read the label as well, it talks about how it's from this area where Thomas Jefferson first thought of having, um, having American wines be made. And it made me think of, there's this, uh, part of his golf course in New Jersey where he has a sign up that talks about this battle from the civil war. Um, and historians have discovered that he invented a battle. Uh, as a marketing ploy, it didn't exist. So, like on one of the tees, it's like the fourth tee on his golf course. There's just this fake battle that he's invented, and it made me wonder with this sign with the, with the Trump wine whether uh, Thomas Jefferson had anything to do with wine ever. I mean, he lies about everything. So, you know, it's just it's layer upon layer of uh, of just you know lies and branding and marketing, and that's that's a fitting end, hopefully, to the Trump presidency to chug this horrific swill. There's only one thing to say to that: fake booze. Exactly, <laughs> Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Brian's going to be with us for a special aftermath edition of The Bunker later this week, so who knows what that will be like. Before we go, I've got some news about the podcast. The Bunker is changing. We're moving the main roundtable debate show to Tuesday instead of Wednesday so that we can react faster to the events early in the week and to give us some clear blue water between The Bunker and Oh God, What Now, the podcast formerly known as Romaniacs. Last week's renaming of the show went brilliantly with loads of extra listeners, even if my mum thinks it's called Oh God, Not You Again. So your new Bunker timetable is Start Your Week on Mondays, the main roundtable on Tuesdays, and the Bunker Daily on Wednesday to Friday. Just subscribe. It makes everything easier. Thanks to Brian Class. Brian, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you on the other side. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harris. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.